Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Hello, everybody. Hello. Good evening. Good evening. Actually, we usually don't start till 7.15, but because we're so crowded, I don't see any reason to wait. So, um, welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. I don't recognize a lot of faces, which means you're new people, and that's great. I'm not sure how you came to come here, but welcome. Um, I'm Ellen Datlow. I usually run this with Matt Kressel, who is hiking in the Pyrenees. Did you have a note from him or something? He's actually on a eating his way, eating and hiking their way through the Pyrenees. So, and he sent pictures online. But so tonight I'm, I'm hosting with um, David Mercurio Rivera. So. Um, just so you know that there are books, Nora's books are for sale in the back. Um, there are lots of copies of her newest novel and there are copies of her three earlier ones. And um, Alison Wise does not have a novel out yet. She will have a collection out in a few months, right? And uh, the, po- the postcards you see that may have been passed around are about her collection, so grab a postcard, and when it's available, I hope you'll all buy it. And anyway, when you buy Nora's book, she'll s- I'm sure she'll sign a few at the intermission and afterwards, whenever you want. Um, just come on up. And uh, basically, all we want, KGB gives us a place for free. We drink. That's how we pay our way. <laughs> Thank you. You can drink alcohol, you can drink soft drinks, you know, but they, you know, this is what, they're very kind to us. We've been doing this at least over 10, or I've been doing it at least over, uh, over 10 years. So um, we will get started. Um, oh, wait, one more thing before I introduce Al, AC Wise. Um, uh, later this year, we have people coming. September 16th, we have Lawrence Connolly and Thomas F. Monteleone. In October 21st, we have Fran Wilde and Nathan Ballingrud. November 18th, Robert Levy and Kathy Koja. December 16th, C.S.E. Cooney and Elizabeth Hand. January 20th, Alana Meyer and Delia Sherman. February 17th, Carola Dibble and um, Gemma Files. March 16th, Rio Ewers and David Nickel. April 20th, Elizabeth Baer and Scott Lynch. And May 18th, Ellen Claydis and Victor Laval. Everyone's subject to change, hopefully not. But when you, when, you, when you schedule it this far in advance, sometimes people drop out and we have to you know, put in different people. Anyway, tonight, oops, we have AC Wise. Her short fiction appears in Apex, Uncanny, Shimmer, and The Year's Best Dark Fantasy and Horror 2015. She also co-edits Unlikely Story. Her collection, The Ultra-Fabulous Glitter Squadron Saves the World Again, will be published by, is it Leth? Lethe, Lethe, however, Letha Press um, later this year. Please welcome AC Wise. Thank you. Uh, 
Um, so as Ellen mentioned, my collection will be out in October. Um, she kindly handed out a bunch of postcards that have a custom recipe that I made. Um, the stories in the collection are interspersed with cocktail recipes and I do have a special offer for people who pre-order the collection. I will make you your own custom cocktail recipe that I will send you on a Glitter Squadron coaster. Um, so there's information on my website if you want to pre-order the collection and check that out. <laughs> and I am going to read a, an excerpt of a story from the collection. This is the first, you guys are the first people to hear it ever. Um, so this is a brand new story. This is called Roller Girls Have More Fun. And, uh, oh, yay, drink. <laughs> Just in case. Just in case. I probably need it. Okay, here we go. Where's the corgi? I wish I could have brought the corgi. <laughs> he would have had so much fun. So, uh, as this is an excerpt from Roller Girls Have More Fun. <clears throat> Starlight has always been a roller girl. Even when she was little, when her mama still called her Walter, she knew what she would grow up to be. When Cindy Williams passed out glittery pink invitations in the shape of cupcakes, inviting the whole class to her birthday party at the roller rink, Walter dragged his mother to the mall, pointed to the prettiest, sparkliest, pinkest tutu that ever was, and said, Mama, I want to wear that. Walter's mama glanced at the price tag, pressed her lips into a line, and then said, Okay, baby, but just know the other kids are going to make fun of you. Then Walter's mama knelt down, put her hands on her son's shoulders, and looked deep into his eyes. She didn't quite sigh, but he saw a little flicker of pain and a larger flicker of determination in her gaze. She squeezed Walter's shoulders just a touch harder. And just you know, it doesn't matter one bit, she said. Deep down in their hearts, they're just going to be jealous of you wearing something so pretty. But don't you pay them any mind, ever. You're going to be the belle of the ball. The moment they got home from the mall, Walter pulled the tutu out of the bag and slipped it on. Looking at himself in the mirror, he smiled and whispered the name he'd secretly been hugging tight to his chest for weeks, mouthing it silently in the dark as he fell asleep, holding it like a perfect round marble on his tongue. Starlight. He hadn't told anyone about his real name yet, not even his mama. He'd gotten, from, gotten it from a princess in a cartoon. She rode a unicorn and wore a bright shiny tiara, and Walter always imagined she smelled like strawberries. He hadn't dared say the name aloud yet, but now it finally felt right. And so Starlight went to Cindy Williams' birthday party, wearing the pinkest tutu that ever was, and when everyone gathered to play whip crack, Starlight got to be the end of the chain. And when everyone skated in line so fast that whoever was on the end of the chain had no control, Starlight understood in the moment before Brent Davies let go of her hand just what her mama had been talking about. Her pink tutu survived, but Starlight's nose was broken that day. She skinned her knee too. The barrier surrounding the Moonlight Madness roller disco rink was notoriously unforgiving. To her credit, Starlight didn't cry. She picked herself up, but didn't skate back to the line of seven-year-olds laughing at the boy in his tutu. She lifted her chin, took her skates off, and handed them to the bored-looking attendant half slumbering at his desk. When Cindy Williams's mother, whether Cindy Williams's mother never noticed there was one less child at the party by the end, 
or whether she was simply relieved to be rid of Walter in a tutu, Starlight never knew. With a quarter tucked into one of her shoes, Starlight called her mother from a payphone outside the Moonlight Madness roller rink. She didn't mention the bloody nose or the skinned knee. She pretended her stomach hurt from too much cake and ice cream and asked if Mama would please come take her home. Mama didn't say anything about the busted nose or the skinned knee as Starlight climbed into the beat-up Chevrolet, more rust than powder blue paint by now. Instead, Mama handed over a tissue and drove back home. Starlight's daddy wasn't the understanding kind, and though she never said it, Starlight suspected Mama was just as glad he'd left before he'd ever had a chance to disown his son. There were bruises Starlight wasn't supposed to know about, proving just what Daddy thought of women and men and their places in the world. And he'd have been mighty sore at Mama for being so proud of her son. On her 18th birthday, Starlight's Mama gave her a brand new pair of roller skates. I was thinking maybe you could get a job at the new Moondust Rollerama, she said. She didn't look Starlight in the eye. Starlight was prettier than her. Had been for a while. And she was afraid a gir her girl must be ashamed of having a mama so plain. She should have done better by her. Brought her up right. She should have taken Starlight to the best salons for hair and nails. Bought her the fanciest dresses. But what did she know with her bleached up hair, turquoise eyeshadow, and three, ki three kitten gray t-shirt over worn thin black stretch pants? Starlight's mama fidgeted. She looked at her cigarette. She turned her lighter over and over in her hands. Starlight, her beautiful daughter, startled her by planting a kiss on her cheek. Thank you, mama. They're perfect. Starlight took the skates to her room. She set them on her dresser, lined with stop-and-save cosmetics. She told her mama the truth. They were perfect. White leather, red wheels, laces aching for her fingers. But how much had they cost? Starlight chewed her lip. She lifted one skate, spinning the bright red wheel. If she followed mama's advice and got a job, she could help out with the bills. Starlight picked up the other skate, and something rattled. She dug in the boot. Buried in the toe was one last present, a compact of pink lip gloss the rosy color of fireworks burning over the lake on the 4th of July. Starlight glides effortlessly around the edge of the rink, palm upturned, fingers splayed, balancing a tray of frosty milkshakes. Her uniform is regulation spotless, her hair and makeup are her own. Today, her teased-up dew is silver, threaded with old tinsel salvaged from Christmas decorations, and her lipstick is seashell pink, studded with the most kissable glitter imaginable. She barely breaks stride, handing out each drink, collecting payment with a smile and a perfect pirouette spin. She never gets an order wrong, and everyone at the moon dust loves her. She shows up early, not just on time, and she even had her own skates when she applied for the job. Tony, the Rollerama's manager, hired her before she even opened her mouth to say her name. The Rollerama isn't just a job for Starlight, it's freedom. Gliding around and around under the spin of the colored lights feels like love. The music thumps in time with her blood. 
When she's skating, everything is perfect for just a little while. Starlight doesn't have to worry about most of her paycheck going to help Mama with the bills and how it's barely enough. She doesn't have to worry about Mama working her second job or that nasty cough she can't shake. And while those are part of the reason Starlight took the job at the Rollerama, when she's skating, they're not what she thinks about. No, it's all about the wheels. Her favorite times are the brief moments when the Rollerama is closing and all the customers have gone home. Alone except for Tony and the other employees, Starlight takes center stage, executing the most perfect twirl under the disco ball just before the lights go off for the night. Glints of silver fly around her like the universe holding her in its arms and dancing. For that one moment, everything is perfect. She doesn't have any worries at all. When she doesn't have orders to fill, Starlight glides around the edges of the rink, watching the customers. Couples on first date holding hands as they twirl under the lights, children fighting to get their wobbly fawn legs under control, teenagers in their black leather jackets, gathered on the fringes, too cool to skate, judging and watching, hunters on the prowl. Starlight keeps an eye on these last ones, the popped collar hyenas. She watches out for their prey too, the sad boys and girls skating alone, reaching desperately after the freedom of the glide but so unhappy inside their skins. She is ever vigilant, ready to swoop in and intervene. On this particular night, Starlight marks them, the predators, Dean, Eddie, and Vic. They remember Starlight back when she was called Walter. She remembers them when they were Theodore and Victor, and Dean wore cloudy lens glasses with thick black rims. They've forgotten this, and their names, but they remember the whipcrack kid crashing into the wall at Cindy Williams' birthday party and laughing so hard they almost wet themselves. Starlight has grown up, but they haven't. They're watching a girl with frizzy red hair and glasses almost as thick as Dean's used to be. She can't be more than 15, wearing a bulky sweater to hide the fact that her breasts haven't come in yet. She also wears thick tights over knobby knees. Her coltish legs haven't grown into them. She's afraid to smile because her braces only came off last week. Her name is Deborah. Starlight knows because she's been paying attention. Deborah has come to the Rollerama just about every weekend for the past three months, watching the grace some lucky boys and girls have found in their bodies. She never joins in their formations on the polished floorboards. Deborah is a good skater, but she's afraid. She doesn't trust her body, doesn't trust that if the girls and boys she watches so avidly ever catch sight of her, they won't make her the end of the whipcrack line. So she makes herself small, gliding on the periphery, trying not to be seen. And on the periphery, she doesn't see Dean, Vic, and Eddie watching. But Starlight watches for her. She sees Dean pull a wad of gum from his mouth as Deborah prepares to skate past, ready to drop it in her frizzy hair. Starlight is quicker, cutting in front of Deborah without cutting her off, making it look like an accident until she reaches Dean and grabs his wrist. Don't even think about it, she says, twisting Dean's wrist hard. He drops the wad of gum. Dean's mouth opens, and Starlight flashes him her sweetest smile. She gives him an almost curtsy, retrieving the dropped gum in a napkin before anyone can skate over it, getting it tangled in their wheels. Dean is still sputtering as Starlight glides away. 
As she passes the trash can, dropping the gum-filled napkin, Starlight notices someone else watching tonight, too. The woman stands at the back of the bleachers surrounding the Rollerama's ring. Her hair is copper, teased high and smoothed into a bouffant dome. Her dress matches her hair, the color of a new penny, short and tight over chunky, high-heeled boots of soft, dark green leather, reaching well past her knees. Her jacket matches her boots. Arms crossed, she watches Dean, Eddie, and Vic intently. Starlight slows. She's never seen the woman before, never seen her around town at all. Feeling herself watched, the woman turns towards Starlight. The edge of her mouth creeps up in something that can't quite be called a smile. Starlight blushes, spinning away. Luckily, the light pops up on the other side of the ring, indicating an order ready to be collected. She loads up her tray with milkshakes cold enough to frost their glasses. Then Starlight glides across the rink, her tray perfectly balanced. She isn't expecting it when Dean swoops in. He crisscrosses his skates, making them hum as he whirs past. His hand flicks out so fast he's already gone before the tray clatters to the ground, shattering glass and spattering chocolate and strawberry. Watch where you're going, faggot. Hyena, hyena laughter trails behind Vic and Eddie, following in their leader's wake. The three of them glide past her, and Starlight promises herself she won't cry, even though her eyes sting as she wipes at the mess soaking her uniform. She blinks false eyelashes hard and fast until the tears retreat. She won't give them the satisfaction. Instead, she pastes on a smile, bigger and brighter than before as she gathers the broken glass. Hey. Tony, the Rollerama's owner, comes down from his observation booth above the rink and touches Starlight's shoulder. You don't have to do that. We'll get someone else to clean it up. Starlight straightens. She has to fight tears all over again at the look on Tony's face. You say the word and those guys are banned for life. Tony has a smile that peeks out of one side of his mouth. It's fine, Starlight says, smoothing her skirt. She notices one of her perfect shell pink nails is broken. You can take off early, Tony offers. No, I want to finish my shift. Starlight squares her shoulders. Okay then, but don't worry about this. Tony gestures at the glass. Then he snaps his fingers. Hey, Courtney, grab a mop and broom, will ya? I'm gonna clean this up. Starlight is almost shaking with gratitude, hoping it doesn't show as she glides across the rink. She doesn't dare look back, afraid the basset hound sadness of Tony's eyes will break her. Maybe she never had a daddy growing up, but she found one here at the Rollerama, and it hurts every time she sees him worrying about her. Shift over, Starlight walks to her car with her skates slung over her shoulders. She's still wearing her uniform, even though it smells like chocolate and strawberry and sugary whipped cream. Her feet hurt. She's tired, and she just wants to go home. One of her wheels isn't quite right. Something slipped out of alignment during the incident, and she finished out her shift with a wobble. Moths circle parking lot lights shining the color of faded bruises. Her car, a beat-up Volkswagen Rabbit, just as rusty as her mama's Chevy ever was, is one of the last left. Except for a forest green Mustang, just set outside of the glow of the lights. The hairs on the back of Starlight's neck prickle. Dean, Vic, and Eddie are still here, waiting. What'd we tell you about watching yourself, faggot? Vic pushes away from the car, a scrap of darkness separating from a larger clot of shadow. 
We don't want your kind around here. Dean says nothing, smacking fist against palm, grinning. Their eyes are bright, shining in a way that Starlight associates with beavers. She is tired, so very tired. It's not just the milkshakes, it's whip crack, and Cindy Williams' birthday party, and being told she didn't belong in either the girls' bathroom or the boys' bathroom, her mama's thin cheeks and ugly cough. It's everything weighing on her shoulders since she was seven years old. Starlight doesn't think. She slings the roller skates from her shoulder, holding their knotted strings and whipping them around so fast they blur. They catch Vic in the jaw. Dean and Eddie stare at her. Starlight's keys are in her hands, threaded between her fingers. She lashes out like their claws. Dean screams. He trips, turning before rising to scramble away. Then only Eddie is left. Starlight drops her voice to a growl. Show me what you got, motherfucker. She's never spoken such foul words before. Her mama raised her right, but Starlight is angry, smelling of spilled milkshakes, her chest heaving with all the hurt ever done to her. Eddie must see the shape of Starlight's pain, even if he doesn't understand why Starlight is hurt. The pain is jagged, the edges turned outward, ready to draw blood. Eddie is an idiot, but he's wise enough to know to run. Starlight watches him flee the parking lot, and then slowly lowers her hand, keys jangling as she does. Nice work. Starlight whirls, ready to attack again. It's the woman from the Rollerama, the one who'd watched her earlier. The sodium bruised lights shine off her dress. Shame floods through Starlight. She looks at Vic, still rolling on the ground, clutching his jaw. Shock sets in. She trembles. Starlight will never be able to look Mama in the eye again after what she's done. Her knees threaten to buckle, everything tilting sideways. Hey, relax, kid. The corner of the woman's mouth lifts, but her eyes, the same copper gold as her dress and her hair, too beautiful to be real, remain hard. I'm here to offer you a job. break now about 15 minutes um do you want to do you want to say talk what are you doing now? Uh, before you go before you order another drink or hang out or go to the bathroom or whatever uh gordon lindsay our sound guy everybody hello hello can i have your attention hello 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 we're ready to get started folks thank you we're gonna get started now I am David Mercure Rivera, subbing for Matt Kressel, and I want to thank Ellen Dallow and, and Matt for allowing me to uh, to sub. Uh, before we get started, uh, Ellen asked me to remind all of to well, first of all, I want to do a shout out to Ward Bookstore, who are in the back and they are selling they're selling N.K. Jemison's books, including the fifth season back there. So I remind you all, if you want to buy a book, Nora's available here to sign it. So please go ahead and buy some books and, and drink up. Continue to drink up, please. <laughs> um, it is my honor to, to present tonight our second reader, N.K. Jemison. 
N.K. Jemison is a Brooklyn author whose short story and novels have been multiply nominated for the Hugo and Nebula Awards, shortlisted for the Crawford and the Tip Tree. The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms won the Locus Award for Best First Novel. And her speculative works range from fantasy to science fiction to the undefinable. Her themes include resistance to oppression, the inseverability of the liminal, and the coolness of stuff blowing up. <laughs> her sixth novel, The Fifth Season, is out from Orbit Books, and as I said, it's available in the back. Ladies and gentlemen, N.K. Jemison. attended the Nursif reading maybe four months ago. This is this is going to be a familiar story to you. So um, I didn't know you were here. Huh? Um, but uh, we'll work it out. Um, okay, and I am going to be reading a short story rather than the first chapter of a novel, just because I've been coming to KGB for years, and I know that short stories are often nice because they're closure. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Um, no, novels are good too, but that's it, you know. Okay, <laughs> clearly express preferences here. Um, all right, so I will just say that there is a trigger warning on this for uh, mentions of police brutality, although no actual, actual depiction thereof. Okay, uh, the city born great. I sing the city, fucking city. I stand illegally on the rooftop of a building I don't live in and spread my, my arms and tighten my middle and yell nonsense ululations at the construction site which blocks my view. I'm really singing to the cityscape beyond it. The city will figure it out. It's dawn. The damp of it makes my jeans feel slimy or maybe that's just because haven't, they haven't been washed in weeks. Got change for a wash and dry, just not another pair of pants to wear till they're done. Maybe I'll spend it on more pants at the Goodwill down the street instead, but not yet. Not till I finish going, ah, 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 and listening to the syllable echo. Logistics. Okay, I'm sorry. I usually read from a computer. This paper. There we go. Okay, that's better. Thank you. Um. And listening to the syllable echo back at me from every, every nearby building face. In my head, there's an orchestra playing Ode to Joy with the Busta Rhymes backbeat. My voice is just tying it all together. Shut your fucking mouth, someone yells. So I take a bow and exit the stage. But with my hand on the rooftop door's knob, I stop and turn and frown and listen. Because for a moment, I hear something both distant and intimate sing back at me, basso deep, sort of coy. And from even farther, I hear something else, a dissonant gathering growl. Or maybe those are the rumblers of police sirens. Nothing I like the sound of, either way, I leave. There's a way these things are supposed to work, says Paolo. He's smoking again, nasty bastard. I've never seen him eat. All he uses his mouth for is smoking, drinking coffee, and talking. Shame, it's a nice mouth otherwise. We're sitting in a cafe even now. I'm sitting with him because he bought me breakfast. The people in the cafe are eyeballing him because he's something not white by their standards, but they can't tell what. 
They're eyeballing me because I'm definitively black and because the holes in my clothes aren't the fashionable kind. I don't stink, but these people can smell anybody without a trust fund from a mile away. <laughs> right, I say, biting into the egg sandwich and damn near wetting myself. Actual egg, Swiss cheese. It's so much better than that McDonald's shit. Guy likes hearing himself talk. I like his accent. It's sort of nasal and sibilant, nothing like a Spanish speaker's. His eyes are huge, and I think, I could get, get away with so much shit if I had permanent puppy eyes like that. But he feels older than he looks, way, way older. There's only a tinge of gray at his temples, nice and distinguished, but he feels like a hundred. He's also eyeballing me and not in the way I'm used to. Are you listening? He asks. This is important. Yeah, I say, and take another bite of my sandwich. So fucking good. He sits forward. I didn't believe it either at first. Hong had to drag me to one of the sewers down into the reeking dark and show me the growing roots, the budding teeth. I'd been hearing breathing all my life. I thought everyone could. He pauses. Have you heard it yet? Heard what, I ask, which is the wrong answer. It isn't that I'm not listening. I just don't give a shit. <laughs> he sighs. Listen. I am listening. No, I mean listen, but not to me. He gets up, tosses a 20 onto the table, which isn't necessary because he paid for the sandwich and the coffee at the counter, and this cafe doesn't do table service. Meet me back here on Thursday. I pick up the 20, finger it, pocket it. Would have done him for the sandwich, but or because I like his eyes, but whatever. You got a place? He blinks, then actually looks annoyed. Listen, he commands again, and leaves. I sit there for as long as I can, making the sandwich last, sipping his leftover coffee, savoring the fantasy of being normal. I people watch, judge other people's appearances. On the fly, I make up a poem about being a rich white girl who notices a poor black boy in her coffee shop and has an existential crisis. <laughs> I imagine Paolo being impressed by my sophistication and admiring me, instead of thinking I'm just some dumb street kid who doesn't listen. I visualize myself going back to a nice apartment with a soft bed and a fridge stuffed full of food. Then a cop comes in, fat, florid guy buying hipster Joe for himself and another still in the car and his flat eyes skim the shop. I imagine mirrors around my head, a rotating cylinder of them which causes his gaze to bounce away. There's no real power in this. It's just something I do to make myself less afraid when the monsters are near. For the first time, though, it sort of works. The cop looks around but doesn't ping on the lone black face. Lucky, I escape. I paint the city. Back when I was in school, there was an artist who came in on Fridays to give us free lessons in perspective and lighting and other shit that white people go to art school to learn. Except this guy hadn't done that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Except this guy had done that, and he was black. I'd never seen a black artist before. For a minute, I thought I, I could maybe be one, too. I can be, sometimes. Deep in the night, on a rooftop in Chinatown, with a spray can for each hand and a bucket of drywall paint that somebody left outside after doing up their living room in lilac, I move in scuttling, crab-like swirls. The drywall stuff I can't use too much of. It'll start flaking off after a couple of rains. Spray paint's better for everything, but I like the contrast the two textures make. Liquid black on rough lilac, red edging the black. I'm painting a hole. It's like a throat 
that doesn't start with a mouth or end in lungs, a thing that breathes and swallows endlessly, never filling. No one will see it except people in planes angling toward LaGuardia from the southwest, a few tourists who take helicopter tours and NYPD aerial surveillance. I don't care what they see. It's not for them. It's real late. I didn't have anywhere to sleep for the night, so this is what I'm doing to stay awake. If it wasn't the end of the month, I'd get on the subway, but the cops who haven't met their quota would fuck with me. Gotta be careful here, too. There's a lot of dumb fuck Chinese kids west of Grand Street who want to pretend to be a gang, even though all the money's out in Astoria now, so I keep low. I'm skinny, dark, that helps too. All I want to do is paint, man, and because it's in me, and I need to get it out. I need to open up this throat. I, I need to, I need to, yeah, yeah. There's a soft, strange sound as I lay down the last streak of black. I pause and look around, confused for a moment, and then the throat sighs behind me. A big, heavy gust of moist air tickles the hairs on my skin. I'm not scared. This is why I did it, though I didn't realize that when I started. Not sure I know now, but when I turn back, there's only paint on a rooftop. Paolo wasn't shitting me, huh? And maybe my mama was right, and I ain't, or maybe my mama was right, and I ain't never been right in the head. I jump into the air and whoop for joy, and I don't even know why. I spend the next two days going all over the city, drawing breathing holes everywhere till my paint runs out. I'm so tired when I find Paolo again that I stumble and nearly fall through the cafe's plate glass window. He catches my elbow and drags me over to a bench meant for customers. You're hearing it, he says. He sounds pleased. I'm hearing coffee, I suggest, not bothering to stifle a yawn. A cop car rolls by. I'm not too, I'm not too tired to imagine myself as nothing beneath notice, not even worth beating for pleasure. It works again. They roll on. Paolo ignores my suggestion. He sits down beside me and his gaze goes strange and unfocused for a moment. Yes, the city is breathing easier, he says. You're doing a good job even without training. I try. He looks amused. I can't tell if you don't believe me or if you just don't care. I shrug. I believe you. I also don't care, not much, because I'm hungry. My stomach growls. I've still got that 20 he gave me, but I'll take it to the church plate sale I heard about over on Prospect. Get chicken and rice and greens and cornbread for less than the cost of a free trade small batch roasted latte. <laughs> he glances down at my stomach when it growls. Huh. I pretend to stretch and scratch above my abs, making sure to pull up the shirt a little. The artist guy brought a model for us to draw once and pointed to this little ridge of muscle above the hips called the girdle of Adonis. Paolo's gaze goes right to it. Come on, fishy fishy, I need somewhere to sleep. <laughs> then his eyes narrow and focus on mine again. I had forgotten, he says in a faint, wondering tone. I almost, it's been so long. Once though, I was a boy of the favelas. Not a lot of Mexican in New York, I reply. He blinks and looks amused again, then he sobers. This city will die, he says. He doesn't raise his voice, but he doesn't have to. I'm paying attention now. Food, living, these things have meaning to me. If you do not learn the things I have to teach you, if you do not help it, the time will come and you will fail, 
and this city will join Pompeii and Atlantis and a dozen others with name, whose names no one remembers, even though thousands of people died with them. Or perhaps it will be a stillbirth, the shell of the city surviving to perhaps grow, grow again in the future, but its vital spark snuffed for now, like New Orleans. But that will still kill you either way. You are the catalyst, whether of strength or destruction. He's been talking like this since he showed up. <laughs> Places that never were, things that can't be, omens importance. I figure it's bullshit because he's telling it to me, a kid whose own mama kicked him out and prays for him to die every day. God hates me, and I fucking hate God back, so why would he choose me for anything? But that's why I really start paying attention, because of God. I don't have to believe in something for it to fuck up my life. <laughs> Tell me what to do, I say. Paolo nods, looking smug. He thinks he's got my number. Ah, you don't want to die. I stand up, stretch, feel the streets around me grow longer and pliable in the rising heat of the day. Is that really happening, or am I imagining, imagining it? Or is it happening and I'm imagining it? That it's somehow connected to me? Fuck you, that ain't it. Then you don't even care about that? He makes it a question with the tone of his voice. Ain't about being alive. I'll starve to death someday, or freeze some winter night, or catch something that rots me away until the hospitals have to take me even without money or an address. But I'll sing and paint and dance and fuck and cry the city before I'm done, because it's mine. It's fucking mine. That's why. It's about living, I finish. And then I turn to glare at him. He can kiss my ass if he doesn't understand. Tell me what to do. Something changes in Paolo's face. He's listening now, too, to me. So he gets to his feet and leads me away for the first real lesson. This is the lesson. Great cities are like any other living things, born and maturing and wearying and dying in their turn. Duh, right? Anybody who's visited a real city feels that one way or another. All those rural people who hate cities are afraid of something legit. Cities really are different. They make a weight upon the world, a dent in the fabric of reality like, like a black hole, maybe. Yeah, I go to museums sometimes. They're cool inside and Neil deGrasse Tyson is hot. <laughs> As more and more people come in and deposit their strangeness and maybe leave and get replaced by others, the dent deepens. Eventually it gets so deep that it forms a pocket connected only by the thinnest thread of something to something, whatever cities are made of. But the separation starts something, and in that pocket, the many parts of the city begin to multiply and differentiate. Its sewers extend into places where there is no need for water. Its slums grow teeth, its art centers claws. Ordinary things within it, bridges and construction and stuff like that, start to have a rhythm like a heartbeat if you record their sounds and play them back fast. The city quickens. Not all cities make it this far. There used to be a couple of great cities in the, on the continent, but that was before Columbus fucked the Indian shit up, so we had to start over. New Orleans failed, like Paolo said, but it's still alive, and that's something. It can try again. Mexico City is well on its way, but New York is the first American city to reach this point. The gestation can take 20 years, or 200, or 2,000, but eventually the time will come. The cord is cut, and the city becomes a thing of its own, able to stand on wobbly legs and do... 
whatever the fuck a living thinking entity shaped like a big ass city wants to do. <laughs> and just as in any other part of nature, there are things lying in wait for this moment, hoping to chase down the sweet new life and swallow its guts while it screams. That's why Paolo's here. That's why I can hear the city's breathing and stretch and massage its asphalt limbs. I'm the midwife, see? I run the city. I run it every fucking day. Paolo takes me home. It's just somebody's summer sublet in the Lower East Side, but it feels like a home. I use his shower and eat some of the food in his fridge without asking just to see what he'll do. He doesn't do shit except smoke a cigarette, I think, to piss me off. I can hear sirens on the streets of the neighborhood, frequent, close. I wonder, for some reason, if they're looking for me. I don't say it aloud, but Paolo sees me twitching. He says, The harbingers of the enemy will hide among the city's parasites. Beware of them. He's always saying cryptic shit like this. Some of it makes sense, like when he speculates that maybe there's a purpose to all of it, some reason for the great cities and the process that makes them. What the enemy has been doing, attacking at the moment of vulnerability, crimes of opportunity, might just be the warm-up for something bigger. But Paolo's full of shit, too, like when he says I should consider meditation to better attune myself to the city's needs. Like I'm going to get through this shit on white girl yoga. <laughs> white girl yoga, Paolo says, nodding. Indian man yoga. Stockbroker racquetball and schoolboy handball, ballet and merengue, union halls and Soho galleries. You will embody a city of millions. You need not be them, but know that they are part of you. I laugh. Racquetball. That shit ain't no part of me, Chico. <laughs> the city chose you out of all, Paolo says. Their lives depend on you. Maybe. But I'm still hungry and tired all the time. Scared all the time. Never safe. What good does it do to be valuable if nobody values you? He can tell I don't want to talk no more. So he gets up and goes to bed. I flop on the couch and I'm dead to the world. Dead dreaming, dead dreaming, of a dark place beneath heavy, cold waves where something stirs with a slithery sound and uncoils and turns toward the mouth of the Hudson, where it empties into the sea, toward me. And I am too weak, too helpless, too immobilized by fear to do anything but twitch beneath its predatory gaze. Something comes from far to the south, somehow. None of this is real, quite. Everything rides along the thin tether that connects the city's reality to that of the world. The effect happens in the world, Paolo has said. The cause centers around me. It moves between me, wherever I am, and the uncurling thing, wherever it is. An immensity protects me, just this once, just in this place. Though from a great distance I feel others hemming and grumbling and raising themselves to readiness. Warning the enemy that it must adhere to the rules of engagement which have always governed this ancient battle. It's not allowed to come at me too soon. My protector, in this unreal space of dream, is a sprawling jewel with filth-colored facets, a thing that stinks of dark coffee in the bruised grass of a football pitch, and traffic noise and familiar cigarette smoke. Its threat display of saber-shaped girders lasts for only a moment, but that is enough. The uncurling thing flinches back into its cold cave resentfully, but it will be back. That, too, is tradition. 
I wake with sunlight warming half my face. Just a dream. I stumble into the room where Paolo is sleeping. Sao, Paolo, I whisper, but he does not wake. I wiggle under his covers. When he wakes, he doesn't reach for me, but he doesn't push me away either. I let him know I'm grateful and give him a reason to let me back in later. The rest will have to wait till I get condoms and he brushes his ashy ass mouth. <laughs> After that, I use a shower again and put on clothes that I washed in the sink and head out while he's still snoring. Libraries are safe places. They're warm in the winter. Nobody cares if you stay all day as long as you're not eyeballing the kids' corner or trying to hit up porn on the computers. The one at 42nd, the one with the lions, isn't that kind of library, doesn't lend out books. Still, it has a library safety, so I sit in a corner and read everything within reach. Municipal tax law, birds of the Hudson Valley, what to expect when you're expecting a city baby, New York City edition. <laughs> See, Paolo, I told you I was listening. It gets late in the afternoon and I head outside. People cover the steps, laughing, chatting, mugging with selfie sticks. There's cops in body armor over by the subway entrance, showing off their guns to the tourists so they'll feel safe from New York. I get a Polish sausage and sit to eat it at the foot of one of the lions. Fortitude, not patience. I know my strengths. I'm full of meat and relaxed and thinking about stuff that ain't actually important, like how long Paolo will let me stay and whether I can use his address to apply for stuff. So I'm not watching the street. Cold prickles skitter over my side. I know what it is before I react, but I'm careless again because I turn to look. Stupid, stupid, I fucking know better. Cops down in Baltimore broke a man's spine for making eye contact. But as I spot these two on the corner opposite the library steps, short pale man and tall dark woman, both in blue like black, I notice something that actually breaks my fear because it's so strange. It's a bright clear day, not a cloud in the sky. People walking past the cops leave short, stark afternoon shadows, barely there at all. But around these two, the shadows pool and curl as if they stand beneath their own private roiling thundercloud. And as I watch, the shorter one begins to stretch, sort of, his shape warping ever so slightly until one eye is twice the circumference of the other. His right shoulder slowly develops a bulge that suggests a dis dislocated joint. His companion doesn't seem to notice. Yo, nope. I get up and start picking my way through the crowd on the steps. I'm doing that thing I do, too, trying to shunt off their gaze, but it feels different this time. Sticky sort of threads of cheap shit gum fucking up my mirrors. I feel them start following me, something immense and wrong shifting in my direction. Even then, I'm not sure. A lot of real cops drip and pulse sadism in the same way, and I ain't taking chances. But I ain't taking chances. My city is helpless, unborn as yet, and Paolo is not here to protect me. I gotta look out for self, same as always. I play casual till I reach the corner and then book it, or try. Fucking tourists. They idle along the wrong side of the sidewalk, stopping to look at maps and take pictures of shit nobody else gives a fuck about. I'm so busy cussing them out in my head that I forget they can also be dangerous. Somebody yells and grabs my arm as I Heisman passed, and I hear a man yell out, he tried to take her purse, as I wrench away. Bitch, I ain't took shit, I think, but it's too late. I see another tourist reaching for her phone to call 911. Every cop in the area will be gunning for every black male aged whatever now. I gotta get out of the area. 
Grand Central's right there. Sweet subway, prom subway promise. But I see three cops hanging out in the entrance, so I swerve right to take 41st. The crowds thin out past Lex, but where can I go? I sprint, sprint across third despite the traffic. There's enough gaps. But I'm getting tired because I'm a scrawny guy who doesn't get enough to eat, not a track star. I keep going, though, even through the burn in my side. I can feel those cops, the harbingers of the enemy, not far behind me. The ground shakes with their lumpen footfalls. I hear a siren about a block away, closing. Shit, the UN's coming up. I don't need the Secret Service or whatever on me, too. I jag left through an alley and trip over a wooden pallet. Lucky again, a cop car rolls by the alley entrance just as I go down and they don't see me. I stay down and try to catch my breath till I hear the car's engine fading into the distance. And then when I think it's safe, I push up, look back. Because the city is squirming around me. The concrete is jittering and heaving. Everything from the bedrock to the rooftop bars is trying its damnedest to tell me to go, go, go. Crowding the alley behind me is, is the shit? I don't have words for it. Too many arms, too many legs, too many eyes, and all of them fixed on me. Somewhere in the mass, I glimpse curls of dark hair and a scalp of blonde paled, and suddenly I understand that this, these, are my two cops, one real monstrosity. The walls of the alley crack as it oozes its way into the narrow space. Oh, fuck, no, I gasp. I claw my way to my feet and haul ass. A patrol car comes around the corner from 2nd Avenue, and I don't see it in time to duck out of sight. The car's loudspeaker blares something unintelligible, probably I'm going to kill you. And I'm actually amazed. Do they not see the thing behind me? Or do they just not give a shit because they can't shake it down for city revenue? Let them fucking shoot me. Better than whatever that thing will do. I hook left onto 2nd Avenue. The cop car can't come after me against the traffic, but it's not like, that, like that'll stop some double cop monster. 45th, 47th and my legs are molten granite, 50th and I think I'm gonna die. Heart attack far too young, poor kid, should have eaten more organic, should have taken it easy and not been so angry. The world can't hurt you if you just ignore everything that's wrong, wrong with it. Well, not until it kills you, anyway. I risk a look back and see something roll around the corner on at least eight eggs, eight legs, using three or four arms to push itself off a car as it careens a little before coming straight after me again. It's the mega cop, and it's gaining. Oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, please no. Only one choice. Swing right, 53rd against the traffic. An old folks home, a park, a promenade, fuck those. Pedestrian bridge, fuck that. I head straight for the six lanes of utter batshittery and potholes that is FDR Drive. Do not pass goal, go, do not cross, try to cross on foot unless you want to be smeared halfway to Brooklyn. Beyond it, the East River, if I survive. I'm even freaked out enough to try swimming in that fucking sewage. But probably I'm gonna collapse in the third lane and get run over 50 times before anyone thinks to put on brakes. Behind me, the mega cop utters a wet, humid huh, like it's clearing its throat for swallowing. I go over the barrier and through the grass into fucking hell I go. One lane, silver car, two lanes, horns, 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 three lanes, semi. What's a fucking semi doing on the FDR? It's too tall, you stupid upstate hick. Screaming four lanes, green taxi, screaming smart car, ha <laughs> ha cute, five lanes. Five lanes, moving truck, six lanes, and the blue Lexus actually brushes up against my clothes as it blares past screaming, 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 screaming. 
Screaming metal and tires as reality stretches and nothing stops for the mega cup. It does not belong here, and FDR is an artery, vital with the movement of nutrients and strength and attitude and adrenaline. The cars are white blood cells and the thing is an irritant, an infection, an invader to whom the city gives no consideration and no quarter. Screaming as the mega cop is torn to pieces by the semi and the taxi and the Lexus and even that adorable smart car, which actually swerves a little to run over the extra wiggly piece. I collapse onto a square of grass, breathless, shaking, wheezing, and can only stare as a dozen limbs are crushed, two dozen eyes squashed flat, a mouth that is mostly gums riven from jaw to palate. The pieces flicker like a monitor with an AV cable short translucent to solid and back again. But FDR doesn't stop for shit except a presidential motorcade or a Knicks game, and this thing sure as hell ain't Carmelo Anthony. <laughs> Pretty soon, there's nothing left of it but a half, but half real smears on the asphalt. I'm alive, oh God. I cry for a little while. Mama's boyfriend isn't here to slap me and say I'm not a man for it. Daddy would have said it was okay, tears me near alive, but Daddy's dead, and I'm alive. With limbs burning and weak, I drag myself up, then fall again. Everything hurts. Is this that heart attack? I feel sick. Everything is shaking, blurring. Maybe it's a stroke. You don't have to be old for that to happen, do you? I stumble over to a garbage can and think about throwing up into it. There's an old guy sleeping on the bench, me in 20 years if I make it that far. He opens one eye as I stand there gagging and purses his lips in a judgy way like he could do better dry heaves in his sleep. <laughs> He says, it's time, and rolls over to put his back to me. Time. Suddenly, I have to move. Sick or not, exhausted or not, something is pulling me. West, toward the city center. I push away from the can and hug myself as I shiver and stumble toward the pedestrian bridge. As I walk over the lanes I previously ran across, I look down onto flickering fragments of the dead megacop, now ground, ground in by a hundred car wheels. Some globules of it are still twitching, and I don't like that. Infection, intrusion, I want it gone. We want it gone. Yes, it's time. I blink, and suddenly I'm in Central Park. How the fuck did I get here? Disoriented, I realize, I, I realize only as I see their black shoes that I'm passing another pair of cops, but these don't bother me. They should. Skinny kid shivering like he's cold on a June day. Even if all they do is drag me off somewhere to shove a plunger up my ass, they should react to me. Instead, it's like I'm not there. Miracles exist. Ralph Ellison was right. Any NYPD you can walk away from, hallelujah. The lake. Bow Bridge. A place of transition. I stop here, stand here, and I know everything. Everything Paolo's told me, it's true. Somewhere beyond the city, the enemy is awakening. It sent forth its harbingers and they have failed, but its taint is in the city now, spreading with every car that passes over every now microscopic iota of the megacop's substance, and this creates a foothold. The enemy uses this anchor to drag itself up from the dark toward the world, toward the warmth and light, toward the, toward the defiance that is me, toward the burgeoning wholeness that is my city. This attack is not all of it, of course. What comes is only the smallest fraction of the enemy's old, old evil. But that should be enough, more than enough, to slaughter one lowly, worn-out kid who doesn't even have a real city to protect him. Not yet. It's time. In time, we'll see. 
On 2nd, 6th, and 8th avenues, my water breaks. Mains, I mean, water mains. Terrible mess, gonna fuck up the evening commute. I shut my eyes and I am seeing what no one else sees. I am feeling the flex and rhythm of reality, the contractions of possibility. I reach out and grip the railing of the bridge before me and feel the steady, strong pulse that runs through it. You're doing good, baby. Doing great. Something begins to shift. I grow bigger, encompassing. I feel myself upon the firmament, heavy as the foundations of a city. There are others here with me, looming, watching. My ancestors buried under Wall Street. My predecessor's blood ground into the benches of Chris Christopher Park. No, new others of my new people, heavy imprints upon the fabric of time and space. Sao Paulo squats nearest, its roots stretching all the way to the bones of dead Machu Picchu, watching sagely and twitching a little with the memory of its own relatively recent traumatic birth. Paris observes with distant disinterest, mildly offended that any city of our tasteless upstart land has managed this transition. <laughs> Lagos exults to see a new fellow that knows the hustle, the hype, the fight, and more, many more, all of them watching, waiting to see if, if their numbers increase, or not. If nothing else, they will bear witness that I, we, were great for one shining moment. We'll make it, I say, squeezing the, real, the railing and feeling the city contract. All over the city, people's ears pop and they look around in confusion. Just a little more, come on. I'm scared, but there's no rushing this. Lo que pasa, pasa, damn now, that song is in my head, in me like the rest of New York. It's all here, just like Paolo said. There's no gap between me and the city any anymore. And as the firmament ripples, slides, tears, the enemy rises up from the, de the deeps with a reality-bridging roar. But it is too late. The tether is cut and we are here. We become. We stand, whole and hale and independent, and our legs don't even wobble. We got this. Don't sleep on the city that never sleeps, son. Don't fucking bring your squamous eldritch bullshit here. <laughs> I raise my arms and avenues leap. It's real, but it's not. The ground jolts and people think, huh, subway's really shaky today. I brace my feet and they are girders, anchors, bedrock. The beast of the deep shrieks and I laugh, giddy with postpartum endorphins. Bring it. And when it comes at me, I hip check it with the BQE, backhand it with Inwood Park, drop the South Bronx on it like an elbow. On the evening news that night, 10 construction sites will report wrecking ball collapses. City safety re regulations are so lax. Terrible, terrible. The enemy tries some kind of fucked up wiggly shit. It's all tentacles, and I snarl and bite into it because New Yorkers eat damn near as much sushi as Tokyo, mercury and oil. <laughs> oh, now you're crying. Now you want to run. Nah, son, you came to the wrong town. I curb stomp it with a full might of queens and something inside, of, inside the beast breaks and bleeds iridescence all over creation. This is a shock, for it has not been truly heard in centuries. It lashes back in a fury, faster than I can block. And in a place that most of the city cannot see, a skyscraper-long tentacle curls out of nowhere to smash into New York Harbor. I scream and fall. I can hear my ribs crack and... No, a major earthquake shakes Brooklyn for the first time in decades. The Williamsburg Bridge twists and snaps apart like kindling. The Manhattan groans and splinters, though thankfully it does not give way. I feel every death as, as if it is my own. Fucking kill you for that, bitch. I'm not thinking. 
The fury and grief have driven me into a vengeful fugue. The pain is nothing. This ain't my first rodeo. Through the groan of the ribs, I drag myself upright and brace my legs in pissing off the platform stance. Then I shower the enemy with a one-two punch of Long Island radiation and Gowanus toxic waste, <laughs> which burn it like acid. It screams again in pain and disgust, but fuck you. You don't belong here. This city is mine. Get out. To drive this lesson home, I cut the bitch with L-I-R-R traffic. <laughs> Long, vicious, honking lines. And to stretch out its pain, I salt these wounds with the memory of a bus ride to LaGuardia and back. <laughs> and just to add insult to injury, I backhand its ass with Hoboken. <laughs> raining the drunk rage of 10,000 dude bros down on it like the hammer of God. Port Authority makes it honorary New York, motherfucker. You just got jerseyed. <laughs> The enemy is as quintessential to nature as any city. We cannot be stopped from becoming, and it cannot be made to end. I hurt only a small part of it, but I know damn well I sent that part back broken. Good. If the time ever comes for that final confrontation, it will think twice about taking me on again. Me. Us. Yes. And when I relax my hands and open my eyes to see Paolo striding along the bridge toward me with another goddamn cigarette between his lips, I fleetingly see him for what he is again, the sprawling thing from my dream, all sparkling spires and reeking slums and stolen rhythms made over with genteel cruelty. I know that he glimpses what I am too, all the bright light and bluster of me. Maybe he's always seen it, but there is admiration in his gaze now, and I like it. He comes to help support me with his shoulder, but he says, congratulations, and I grin. I live the city. It thrives and it is mine. I am its worthy avatar and together we will never be afraid again. 50 years later, I sit in a car watching the sunset from Mulholland Drive. The car is mine, I'm rich now. The city is not mine, but that's all right. The person is coming who will make it live and stand and thrive in the ancient way or not. I know my duty, respect the traditions. Each city must emerge on its own or die trying. We elders merely guide, encourage, stand witness. There, a dip in the firmament near the sunset strip. I can feel the upwell of loneliness in the soul I seek. Poor, empty baby. Won't be long now, though. Soon, if she survives, she'll never be alone again. I reach for my city so far away so inseverable from myself. Ready? I asked New York. Fuck yeah! It answers. <laughs> it answers, filthy and fierce. We go forth to find this city's singer and hopefully to hear the greatness of its birthing song. Yeah. Now buy her books right now, <laughs> and she'll sign them for you, and see you next month. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, 
and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.